Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. It's an honor and delight to be here with Professor Peter W. Oaks, who is the Edgar M. Bronfman Professor of Modern Judaic Studies at the University of Virginia, where he has served since 1997. He's an influential thinker whose interests include Jewish philosophy and theology, modern and postmodern philosophical theology, pragmatism, and semiotics. Professor Oaks coined the term scriptural reasoning and co-founded with Anglican theologian W. David F. Ford, the Society for Scriptural Reasoning, which promotes interfaith dialogue among Christians, Jews, and Muslims through scriptural study groups. He directs UVA's research initiative, Religion, Politics, and Conflict. Professor Oaks, thank you for taking time to talk. Thank you, Rev Shmuley. So to jump right in here with you, uh, can you describe a little bit your models and methods uh, to assist peacemakers around the globe and your, and your current research uh, that you're involved with? Yes, uh, thanks for asking. All my work is, is grounded you know, for 40 years now in a combination of logical study, philosophy and formal logic, and rabbinics. Uh, I'm interested in modeling and formal ways of modeling the reasoning that goes on Talmudically, Midrashically, when our sages are interpreting scripture. And what I do um, more broadly is compare those models to contemporary models um, used in, often even in the seminaries, but also in the academy for studying values, belief, and so forth. And I tend to argue that the contemporary academic models tend to be binary. They tend to uh, imperceptibly introduce approaches that divide, divide knowledge, divide heart and mind, divide people. And that the formal models I do of rabbinic thinking look in the form I, I use, they look like modern logic, but in, in fact, they are expressions of a non-binary or relational form of reasoning. I've used that model over the years to help generate the society, you know, the ideas of textual reasoning and the idea of scriptural reasoning. But in the last eight years, I've gotten much more practical. I've been testing the implications of that model for dealing not simply as I've done before with disagreement around the table or argument between congregations. I'm now interested uh, more recently in violent conflict among religious groups. Um, Working right now, or my team is in Pakistan and central India and the US. And we've derived from the the, rabbinic formal models I I mentioned, we've derived a, a technical method for analyzing religious group language and uh, predicting, you could say, how a group in a conflict environment is gonna behave toward other groups for the next few weeks or months. And we use that prediction, a probabilistic prediction, to assist 
both um, NGOs who are peace builders, but also um, more recently police and UN, for example, uh, police and um, military um, to try to influence them to take into account much more subtle and uh, gentle measures of how religious groups are behaving. Wow, fascinating, uh, totally fascinating. So what would be an example of language or the evolution of a discourse, which would be sort of the final stage before violence emerges? Oh, good question. Um, we don't do it that way. We're, we're not suggesting that we caught the sentence that's gonna cause somebody to do something. We're not doing intel, we're not studying individual behavior. We're studying groups of about modest groups, um, operative in a village or a town, uh, fighting another group, let's say about 200 to 4,000 people. And we've discovered by chance through this work, a correlation between uh, the number of different meanings that members of a group associate with key value terms, value words, like Kedusha, I mean, or Hebrew, like Kedushah, um, value terms in the speech of their teachers, of their religious teachers. And on the basis of the number of different meanings, technically we call it multivalence, how many different meanings do they think? We have a, a, a rather subtle nine point scale of uh, future behavior by the group as a whole. So in general, we don't look at, we've learned, we did before, but we learned after several years not to look at the content of the speeches and say, oh, they're saying things that are dangerous. Because our data has, has suggested over years that dangerous speech as heard by Westerners or outsiders in a religious discourse may not be dangerous on the ground. Instead, we look for performative signals of the energy of the group, and we've been pretty successful that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, fascinating and uh, incredible. So, um, you know, normally when we think about, when people hear about religion today, that we often hear about um, bigotry and violence, the stuff that you're addressing. And I wonder why you think that is. Why, why is this almost primary for many in, in, in how they understand what religion is today? Well, I think uh, it's for good reason. The headlines suggest that, and behind the headlines is significant evidence that globally, uh, the greatest rise, the greatest source of the rise in violence is religion-related. That is, if you compare it to 100 years ago and so forth, by the 70s and 80s, the UN report suggested, well, violent conflict is going down. And they were ignoring religion-related conflict, and in the last 20 years, it's going significantly up. So readers associate or listeners associate the word religion with violence, not because it's a mistake if they think it's because religion itself is violent, but it's rather because there are religious groups involved in most of the conflicts in the world right now. Um, if you ask me, why do I think, so I'll pretend you ask me, <laughs> why, why do I think so many religious groups are involved in such conflict? And I can't, tell, I can't even have a, a hypothesis for each case, but overall I do. The majority of cases are consequences of several, even 200 years of colonialism, that is of Western intervention in indigenous religious societies, um, where members of those religious groups were oppressed. It's not just the oppression that, we, that is having them respond violently, 
It's rather that the very structure of Western thinking has entered their religious discourse. So that if, if you compare the patterns of reasoning in 15th century Muslim, Christian, Jewish scriptural commentaries, they're distinctly different than the religious discourses by Orthodox you know, members of all those traditions after colonialism. The religion itself has absorbed something Western subtly, and that subtle absorption, um, I think, uh, generates a more radical, uh, a more divisive understanding of their religions. So, you know, um, I, I, I recently heard someone explain that um, religious struggles are, can be a mask for deeper socioeconomic power struggles. And, and their argument was that it's not really about religion at all. And their evidence, um, and I wonder what you would just, how you'd respond to this, is that in it, just looking at Islam, that there's more conflicts between, more Muslims kill mu Muslims than non-Muslims. And that was their evidence that, or, or that, 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 you know, for arguing that it's not really about religion, ultimately. Uh, what would your well, response be to that? Yeah, uh, very much. Um, the U.S. and um, French, English, and other Western, um, we would call State Departments and foreign affairs uh, um, bodies, agencies, and diplomats, have failed in the last, over the last hundred years in um, asking for and working on any social science of religious behavior in conflict settings. What happens instead, and I worked at the State Department for a little while, so I saw it firsthand. I was an academic consultant on religion and conflict about 10 years ago. What I observed is that these foreign affairs folks um, assume that there isn't such a thing as religion as a source of conflict. So they're not studying it. They, when they see religious behavior, they assume it's the same as economic, that they assume that the reasons are economic and demographic and so forth. So there's terrible data by our agencies that are most involved in peacekeeping. Conclusion, it's not that the religion causes this conflict, it's that religious actors are involved in the conflict and if we understood their individual group motivations, um, our policy would address their needs much more accurately and helpfully. Very interesting, very interesting. So what are some ways that religion can be used to promote peace and reconciliation, especially, especially between adherence to different, different faith traditions? Yeah, by the way, I'll just add one more thing. When you mentioned Muslim against Muslim, yeah. Religious conflict is religious conflict within traditions. I don't consider it different. Good point. Yeah, great if point. There's, if there's a difference in Israel right now, it's not open conflict, but between different denominations, it's, on the, it's politically violent, but not physically violent. Right. It's, I don't think they're any different at all. Great. Um, same logic, same, same forms. Um, but if you say, how can religion be a tool or use for peacekeeping, um, working in what you introduced as uh, um, my, I appreciate it, you described my work in scriptural reasoning, which is a, a method for getting serious religious practitioners who otherwise wouldn't do so, getting them to sit together and study their scriptures openly with each other. And we've done it for 25 years uh, in different parts of the world with great success. 
I would say on the basis of that, that scripture itself in each tradition, of course, my biases are in Tanakh, and I do, but I don't say that otherwise when I'm doing this work. Scripture itself is a resource for peace because, and I don't use this term in my social science work, but it's what's governing my thinking because Hashem is present. <laughs> That's why. And when humans con conflict with each other, there's no resolution, I believe, w without Dibur of some kind, w without the presence of a divine word. Now, what I've done to be able to talk publicly is I found logical, that is, I discovered that when that word is present in a text or it's received, that the form of language and behavior that follows that can be mapped. It has a logical structure. So I'm not saying I know any way to identify God's presence, mm -hmm. but over time, if I have enough data, I can tell you for those believers whose readings they believe are infused by his presence or God's presence, I can measure the logic of their consequent behavior. So it's a signal. And what we find is that if you get groups to study, to share their scriptures, um, the consequence is peaceful. The issue is how do you get them to share um, in, con in violent conflict settings I don't think religion has a role in peace building. In nonviolent settings, it has a major role, but you can't share scripture among people who are shooting each other. Right. In those settings, I've, I've left my scriptural reasoning work for those settings. And instead of trying to seek religious leaders who will help resolve, which they don't, they're political leaders. When it's violent conflict, a religious leader is a political leader. Um, what I found instead that religions are really useful through the way they make value judgments in displaying signals that peacekeepers can read, mm -hmm. not in being agents of peace. Mm. Strong, so, strong change from my earlier work. Yeah, wow. So you may, you may have just answered this and, and the answer might be your scriptural reasoning approach, but it's been suggested that much of the framework for the interfaith dialogue as we think of it today what developed in Western Europe and the U.S. under a framework heavily influenced by Protestantism. And I wonder, um, how do we balance this power dynamic with acknowledging the different epistemologies of people from different religious backgrounds and geographic area? Do you agree that that's kind of how it developed? And if so, is that still where it's at? And is scriptural reasoning a part of the response to a new model? I like your voice. I mean, here, Rob Shmuley is, is a philosopher. I, I like the way you put that. Epistemology is like a beautiful word for me. So thanks for asking it that way. I'd, I wouldn't call the early interfaith work Protestant because unless you mean 19th century, there it is. But in the United States, from the 50s on, the interfaith work was all Catholic. From the 50s, I mean, the, the most prominent interfaith work. Um, but anyway. It was Christian, put it that way. Liberal Christian, you could say. And I don't think the epistemology that burdened that process was Christian. I think the part of the epistemology that burdened it was modern. That is, these religious, deeply heartfelt people who were seeking Jewish Christian understanding and then later Jewish Muslim Christian they had Christian ideals, but if you look at their language as I do technically, they were framed by Western models of ethics, Western models of politics, Western models of agreement and disagreement, and those fail because 
underlying those models is divisiveness without seeing it. It's a, it's, I mean, technically for your listeners, it's a propositional logic. Where, I mean, that's a technical term simply to mean where all reason is accepted as rational only if you can make a simple claim like the dog is green, the cat is black. But if you're trying to make claims about religious beliefs and values, and you put them into that clear form, X is Y, you actually demolish the capacity of the religious language to be a source of peace because you make it into an object. Um, I can't explain all that obviously in a second, so your listeners will have to be puzzled and, and, until they read <laughs> on that. But the, the implication is, um, as strong as you may have suggested, I think Western epistemologies are very good for technical things and for identifying the color of the tree but they're not good, the contemporary modern Western epistemologies, including those that generate interfaith work, are not good at really listening to deep, complex religious values talking to each other. Okay, amazing. So a last question that relates to kind of our Jewish responsibility in this era. Um, so many of our assumptions of, of modernity, of course, have been challenged over the past hundred years, not to mention just these past few decades. And I wonder how can we have a robust normative Jewish ethical tradition in a postmodern age where many of our previous notions of truth have been so strongly challenged? What's the relationship between a weakening of our sense of yeah. absolute truth and moral rigor in, in, our, in, our, in our ethical commitment? Well, the goal of the group, we, the first group I co-started called the Society for Textual Reasoning, Jewish Textual Reasoning. Um, the goal was to return, to have academic thinkers across the board join together despite their different disciplines in Talmudic studies side by side, philosophers, historians, and then to do the same with academics and rabbinic leaders from the community studies side by side, because we believed, and that society is still around, and we still believe that the epistemology, the way of knowing that generates a respect and devotion to tradition, and at the same time, the capacity to interpret different meanings for different ways of life, different contexts, that remains Talmudic for us. And the problem is, even in Jewish studies programs, the dominant methods of thinking are not rabbinic, they're not Jewish. I don't mean they're anti-Jewish, but Judaism is a subject that they look at with tools that I can identify logically as Western tools. So it's a divisive form of studying one's own tradition. That's why our goal was to develop a mode of reasoning out of the texts of, of the rabbinic tradition and a scientific, when I'm, my social science that diagnoses group behavior and that has results that you know, military folks might listen to, that social science is based in rabbinics. And so what are some of the ethical implications of that new approach? <laughs> the ethical implications are don't send your children so quickly to liberal arts colleges unless they're grounded at the same time. And it, I don't, it, it can be reform, orthodox, whatever. With any denomination, they got to be grounded in their traditional studies. Yeah. And they can't come from homes that mouth Judaism, send their kids to liberal arts colleges, which are great places, 
but they're not great places if, if, if the children are not grounded in the kind of reasoning that preserves the foundation of our ethics. So I can't answer you with specific ethics, all ethics, everything to do with the formation of the human being to serve God or to serve the good is in the way our tradition reread re scripture midrashically and so forth. Yeah. And without that, yeah. I don't think there is ethics wow. for us. Wow, wow. This has been uh, incredibly fascinating from you know, global conflict to, um, to how we read Jewish texts and, uh, and critique of, <laughs> of the, you know, the liberal establishment. So, th so thank you, thank you for this and wish you much for awesome. continued success in your work. Shalom.